to Louise's Health Kick podcast, the CPD series. In this educational series, Louise is in conversation with numerous experts to discuss the many aspects of food and lifestyle which impact on early childhood development. This CPD is linked to Louise's series of short courses for the early years and education sector. How Food Shapes Your Child CPD courses show you why feeding a child is so much more than putting food on their plates. Hello and welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast. This is the CPD podcast series to accompany the How Food Shapes Your Child course series. Today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Roberts, who is a state registered dietitian in the UK. She's also the author of the award winning book, Help, My Toddler Is Not Eating. Well, we've all been there. Inspired by working with families and fussy eaters to set up a family program. This book provides a scientifically based plan, which I think is really important in this sort of array of cookbooks and family sort of health books that are out there. This is scientifically based. I think that's an important point to make. And it takes parents step by step through techniques that research has proven to work. So Elizabeth is able to support families with practical and scientific advice. She does continue to practice in the UK with the National Health Service and privately and still investigates and research and writes about all the connections about how what we eat and how we can't eat something. So I'm interested about that. Um, I've invited Elizabeth along to discuss the importance of forming food relationships. As you know, in this module, we've been looking at how we, the grown-ups, can influence developing food habits as part of the Shaping Food Relationships course. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely delighted, Eloise. Thank you for inviting me. So the first thing I want to ask you is kind of what I ask all my guests first is kind of why this career? What is it about this particular career path that's sort of driven your passion and and sort of you know that the years of, of hard work and study you've put into this particular area? Um, so I've always had an interest in nutrition Louise from when I was uh, really quite young um, I do remember as a, a sort of teenager writing out meal plans for people I'm not entirely sure why <laughs> and it's not what I do today um, so I um, studied dietetics um, and I've always loved the topic and, and, and love reading and researching about nutrition um, how I particularly got into this topic of how children learn to eat is I was doing a job in uh, Wales in Newport um, and it was a program um, where we were looking at uh, getting children to eat better Um, so I had learned through my training about what children should be eating but I was now faced with this oh how how do how do we get children to eat what they what we think they should eat or what is good for for them to eat Um, and so I set about uh, researching that particular topic how is it that we learn to eat and how do children learn to eat Um, and based on that I designed a parenting program um, for families um, to join with children of different ages um, to help improve children's eating and it was really from that that the book came about I'd done the research and and come up with some sort of conclusions and solutions um, based on the the scientific evidence um, and designed the book from there. Mm, so it's it's fascinating in terms of the, the the scope, I think, of this subject. I think people kind of just think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's just food. You put it in front of a child and, and hopefully they'll eat it. But it obviously is, is a lot deeper than that. And there's many sort of many different areas that we, the grown-ups, are sort of influential in that food relationship, aren't they? And it's not just about the food. There are obviously there's a big you know, a big part of our food relationship is the actual food, but there's a lot of um, 
other areas as well, how we talk about food, how we present food. Um, the whole food journey is much bigger than the actual food on the plate, isn't it? Could you tell us a little bit about some of the science behind sort of the wider issue? It's not just what's well, there, eat it. I think one of the things that struck me is that um, we have almost um, two competing, um, um, how can we call it, um, sort of drives really. Um, so, so children, a lot of how children l- learn to eat is, is actually quite logical when we look at it from an evolutionary point of view, um, but not always helpful um, in, in a modern context. Um, so for example, the term neophobia that children get in their sort of toddler years um, doesn't seem today to have much of a, a purpose really, because children aren't really exposed to poisonous things poisonous plants, poisonous foods, but they still have this evolutionary drive to become quite cautious about foods just about the time that they start toddling or walking. And it's a a preventive mechanism so that they don't eat poisonous things. Um, And then the flip side of that is that parents have their own instincts. And as a parent, your instinct is to get your child to eat. Your instinct is to worry if your child is not eating or is not eating as much as you think they should eat. Um, And what can often happen is that those those two sort of instincts can almost clash. Um, So parents can start through natural worry and anxiety to to try and coax and pressure children to eat more because they desperately, desperately wanting to nourish your child to keep them well. And that in turn can then lead to them eating less. Um, So so that's one of the things that really struck me in this, how we have these sort of two instincts almost competing with one another. Mm, it's really interesting isn't it because I think as parents as well there is sometimes you know from quite a young age with babies there is quite a lot of pressure on us to to feed and to to you know there's a lot you know in terms of when they're when they're babies and they the, the health visitor comes and they get weighed and they measured of how much weight they've put on how much milk have they had and it's almost in built in us as parents that like you need to be feeding 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 um because that is a, you know how they grow and how they develop but I think children certainly from a slightly older age than babies do know when they're full and I think sometimes we can think well they've hardly had anything but children also are quite good at recognizing they're naturally full and we can kind of think well you've not had the full thing let's just have a bit more and kind of keep going with the spoon um because we think they should have more but actually they naturally know themselves that they're quite full don't they yeah absolutely I mean there was a survey in 2016 um, by the infant and toddler forum um, and in that survey, they discovered that 79% of parents gave their toddlers more than they needed at mealtimes. And yet 73, 73% of the mums and dads worried that their child wasn't eating enough. So, so three quarters of parents were giving their children too much and three quarters were worrying that they weren't eating enough. <laughs> yeah, and I think that comes back to the, this notion of as a parent, you have to be a feeder. And I think that's quite, of course, we have to feed our babies, our toddlers, our children. Um, but we also have to, in a way, respect them as small humans with their own, you know, that they, they know themselves when they're full. They know themselves if they're not hungry in the first place. Um, and to, obviously it gets to the point where, you would have cause for concern if you really were concerned that they were not eating. But if if it's just a natural, okay, that's probably enough for now, then I think we kind of have to understand and think, okay, that is enough for now. We can try again in a couple of hours or so, but not to panic and not to put that kind of guilt on themselves, which I think with parents, there is a lot of, you can place a lot of guilt on yourself and you can compare yourselves. And there's an awful lot of that with parenting. Well, 
baby next to them still eating you know it could be that they're eating way too much but if you compare and think well mine's only had three spoons they've had three bowls you know that doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong yeah they're very very good at eating as much as they need I mean in in many ways young children are probably more in tuned with their appetites than most of us adults are because they will quite happily leave two bites of a sandwich whereas for most adults that's that which is just not something we do we eat we eat the whole thing <laughs> but, but they will happily do that and I, and I think we should allow them to continue doing that um, in, in terms of sort of pressuring children um, the research has shown that if as parents we pressure young children to eat they will actually eat less um, th- there was a really good study called um, Eat Your Soup. Um, so they divided children into two groups. I think they were f- five to seven years old um, and they were given soup to eat. Uh, one group of children were allowed to just eat their soup. Um, second group of children were encouraged for just four times. The researchers said, finish your soup, please. So they weren't they weren't coaxed in any other way. They weren't um, it wasn't an overbearing sort of cajoling just four times. Finish your soup, please. And they measured how much soup the children ate and also how the children liked the soup after the, the study. And the children who were coaxed ate less soup than the group that weren't. And they liked it less than the group who weren't coaxed. That's really interesting. Do you think that's to do with um, independence and free will? I I I personally think that children pick up on cues at the mealtime um, and if there is any any anything that's not happy anything that's not um, relaxed at a mealtime children are very keyed in to picking this up um, and I think it in some way uh, gives the child a sense that something's not quite right um, and if it's not quite right about what about this environment, about what, what's on the table, um, so their instincts are sort of tuned into that something's not quite right, and it reduces their appetite. Mm, that's interesting, and that would certainly transpire to an anxious parent, wouldn't it? If an anxious parent was, you know, cajoling in what they might think is a nice way, but actually their stress is probably coming through. Oh, please, you know, finish it. Please eat it. Please help, mummy. You know, that probably isn't as as sort of nice sounding as we may think it is to the to the baby or the toddler they may they may pick up on our anxiety over there not eating and actually be turned off eating as much as we'd like them to yeah absolutely I mean research has shown that that when parents are anxious children eat less I mean the one caveat I will say with that is what we don't fully understand is is it parental pressure that makes the child eat less or are parents anxious because they feel the child isn't eating um so we don't fully understand cause and effect but i think we can we can sort of surmise that that, that being anxious around meal times and putting pressure on children to eat doesn't help them eat at all no no absolutely so just going away from that subject and and sort of broadening it a little bit now in terms of how we really help to shape an early food relationship in terms of how we as grown-ups um, talk about food and present food and I know you've had some studies and some research about how food um, in terms of different colors and you know different presentations of food and, and what and how we talk about food and what impact that can have on children's sort of preferences or even if it tastes the same or it, it looks different but tastes the same and how it can be perceived as something different so could you talk us through some of those sorts of issues and how that can have a bearing on food relationships absolutely there, there was a, a fantastic I, lo- I love how they name some of these studies so there was a fantastic study called called do not eat the red food exclamation mark um, in 2007 so they 
they had um, five to six-year-olds, um, 74 of them, so quite a few children, um, and they split them into two groups. Um, so the first group, um, so they had M&Ms and crisps. And the M&Ms and the crisps were coloured red and coloured yellow. So they had four different types of foods. Um, and the children were um, in the first group, they were told, um, don't eat the red food. Don't eat the red food. And the second group of children were allowed to eat what they wanted. Um, and then they in, in the second part of the study, they then allowed all of the children to eat what they wanted. Um, and the children who had been prohibited from eating the red foods and told not to eat red foods. Now, bearing in mind, these, these foods were the exact same food and they tasted the same. They were just different colours. Um, the children who had been told to not eat the red foods um, ate more of the red foods in the second part of the study than the group of children who had been out, allowed to eat what they like. Um, and this really mirrors other research. Um, the same group of researchers repeated that experiment uh, for sweets and uh, for fruits, um, telling one group of children to not eat the sweets, the second group to not eat the fruit, um, and the third group were allowed to eat what they wanted. And again, whichever the food was that the children had been told not to eat, they 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 wanted more of in the second part of the study. So so this really um, repeats some of the earlier research that if you prohibit a food, um, children will eat more of it when they then have access to that food. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really come through in, in my course on this food, on this relationship in terms of the role of sugar. And in terms of, you know, if we completely demonize sugar and say no sugar um, and, you know, say absolutely no sugary foods, then it can kind of make sugary foods feel like the forbidden fruits and, and really up the, you know, up their desirability. Um, whereas if we introduce them, uh, with care and caution because obviously they're nutritionally devoid and you know they don't add an awful lot to the diet but we don't want to be creating a food relationship where we have them as something that is really you know forbidden and aspirational um I think one of the key things for me with sugary foods is that we just don't kind of have them on a pedestal so we don't demonize them but we also don't really sort of big them up and make them this amazing you know I don't like calling them treats and things like that because then it kind of gives them some certain you know, that gives them a certain status that I feel nutritionally they don't deserve. Um, but certainly not to to say absolutely none of that for you, because it's going to make it really appealing. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more, Louise. Um, not not having them, not having them around, not having them in the house, really. But then when ac there, there is access to them, um, not prohibiting them, not talking about them in a way that makes them more appealing. Um, yeah, absolutely agree with you. So I'm going to bring in our current food situation. Um, so there's, there's a sort of lots of things at the moment that make it quite difficult to navigate our food landscape. We've obviously got, um, in terms of our food landscape, it's very different than it was 20 years ago. We've got a lot of ultra-processed foods and we've got a cost of living crisis, which is affecting many families and their ability to shop freely for healthier options so within our food landscape at the moment we know that there are lots of real barriers to making healthy choices um, and the ability to go into a shop and actually pick healthy food can be we know it's a you we know you're able to do this on a budget but it takes more planning and prep and more kitchen equipment um, but for people who are facing a real sort of food insecurity issue at the moment how can we help people to navigate this really difficult food landscape of ultra processed foods that tend to be 
the most convenient, the most affordable and very appealing and targeted at children. It's a, it's a very difficult situation at the moment for many families. Um, the, 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 the one thing, um, I, I think that we are we are sort of pushed, if you like, into um, thinking that meal planning, um, planning ahead isn't isn't a thing to do, um, that we should sort of pop into the shops every few days and pick a few things up um, and actually planning out menus or planning out what we're going to have in the house um, is, is not a sort of fashionable thing to do. Um, and, and I disagree with that. I think that having, um, ha- having a, a, a few things that you're making sort of on rotation, sort of on a weekly or fortnightly basis, um, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's more than enough um, variety, if you like. I think that that's a good point. So, so as, a, as a base for you know, a family healthy eating plan, a base for some root vegetables, some lentils, if you have a pan, you know, and a hob, that's a great sort of base for a soup that's filling and full of protein, full of nutrients, but it can also turn into a stew. Um, If you have, you know, you can do lots of things with it. And then even if you do have to resort to, you know, ultra processed convenience foods, because there are times in the week where that is literally the only option to you, then you know, so be it. But I think that is the reality for families, but not to discount, as you say, that there is the option and ability with some planning. And it, it, to eat healthy on a budget, it does take some planning. You know, you, you would have to get foods that are not, and a bag of lentils is very cheap, but you can't just, you know, eat them straight away. You know, you have to do things with them, but you can't get them. I always use lentils because you can't get a, a much cheaper food that is so versatile soups, stews, curries, you know, there's so many things you can do, even just as a side dish, you know, with with something on them, some kind of, you know, to give them some flavour. But then you're able to feel that you've given some nutrients within whatever else you're able to do that week. Absolutely. The the other thing is snacks. Um, We we have a sense that a snack has to be something that comes pre-packaged. And we don't, tend to think quite so much that snack all all snack is is a very small amount of a normal food Um, so snacks can be one or two crackers from a packet of crackers and a little bit of cheese or some cut up apple or something that is a snack it doesn't have to be a pre-packaged bar or a pre-packaged packet of something. Yeah, I think that's a good point because often these snacks targeted at children are quite expensive. And also there's the packaging to consider. So we're trying to reduce our food packaging and individually wrapped items are obviously, you know, using a, a lot more packaging than a big packet of something. And generally it's a lot cheaper to buy a big packet of something. Um, and I think families can think, well, I've got to get, you know, I know my child takes snacks to school. I've got to get the school snacks. I've got to get this. But a, a small Tupperware tub and decant something into that tub is just, it's still a school snack for them, but it's a fraction of the price of the pre-packaged things that are marketed as school snacks. Yeah, absolutely. And and children don't need to be um, in any way um, feeling like they're, they're, they're being left out or that this is done from a budgeting point of view, because we do have the issue of, as you say, Louise, we do have the issue of packaging as well. 
Um, so, so we don't have to present this as a cheaper way to eat, or we're doing this because it's a cheaper way to eat. We are doing this to avoid using too much packaging. Mm, absolutely. And of course, you can get Tupperware tubs that are branded, you know, that once you buy that, that's the child's forever. So just fill that tub up and it's their school snack tub and you can get all sorts of different, you know, if they're like their branding and the school snacks are all branded, then their tub is, is branded and whatever goes in that tub is, is theirs and, and, and no packaging, which I think is a really important part now of our food landscape is the, is the volume of packaging. It is actually a real concern of mine when I think of, you know, the amount of yogurt pots and things that are out there. Where do they go? Um, but that's a different subject entirely. Um, but, but certainly in terms of, you know, watch your, especially as they get older, you know, it's not, not so much primary, but certainly into secondary school where they get a bit more aware of, you know, branded foods and, you know, a bit more aware of peer pressure and things like that. Then certainly the environmental aspect is, is not untrendy. It's, it's a real issue. So it's never going to be untrendy to, you know, to, to go down that road. I think that's something that is certainly worth considering in terms of the buying in bulk, as much as is possible, because obviously to buy in bulk is more expensive initially. Um, so that obviously that's a consideration too. But it's about it is about planning. It is about preparation and planning. And I think once we can do that and kind of, you know, this week we're doing ambient foods and stocking up. And then next week is kind of, you know, to kind of rotate things a little bit financially and know that the cupboard has got these things in. And this week we're going to, I mean, we don't need to eat meat or fish every day. So this this week we're going to, you know, get some of that. But it's not an everyday thing. It doesn't need to be an everyday thing. Too expensive to be an everyday thing. Um, and there are many meals that we can do without it. So I think it's about definitely about planning and rotation but we've kind of veered slightly off topic and that that's my fault because I, I do tend to get very sidetracked um but back to kind of our role as grown-ups now in the course I've I've spoken about how we can get very you know our body language can you know influence a child's um food preference before they've even tasted the food so if we present food in a certain way if we're very excited and animated enthusiastic about giving a child food normally it's something that's you know cake or something like that because we ourselves think oh I love this and I know that they're gonna love it and I'm really excited to give it to them and see their reaction whereas if we're giving them something that's perhaps not so exciting you know like some I always use poor broccoli as an example if we're giving them some broccoli perhaps we're almost a bit apologetic in our body language I know you've got to eat this you know it's good for you How, what impact can that have and we've we've looked at this through the course but from your perspective our role as grown-ups you know what what can we do and what impact do we really have on that child's you know early food habits absolutely parents you are your children's tutor you are their main tutor throughout their life and particularly in relation to food um, this is how children learn to eat so we do have some innate food preferences preferences but mostly um, humans are omnivores, um, and this is how we've thrived in all parts of on, on all par parts of the earth, really, um, in that we can eat a wide range of foods and thrive on that. Um, but what that what that does is it, it means we need to learn what is good to eat and what isn't good to eat. Um, and so most of our food learning is from observing others and then from exposure and what happens to us when we've eaten something, and if it makes us feel good or if it makes us feel ill. Um, 
So mostly how children will learn to eat in, in, in the modern context is, is by observing others. Um, and parents are the key role model, certainly for younger children. Um, I mean, studies show that parents just screwing their faces up or an adult screwing their faces up means the child won't eat the food. Um, and, and I have seen this. Um, I, I recount this example um, of, of when we ran the food programme in Wales. Uh, we had um, children try different types of fruits and vegetables as part of that programme. Um, and we had cherry tomatoes one day um, and cherry tomatoes they can be difficult texture for some people but generally um, tom cherry tomatoes is, is a liked taste it's quite sweet um, and one of the children had had never had cherry tomatoes before um, and the mum went to pick it up because we, we 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 teach the we taught the parents to also role model um, what they want their children to eat or, or, or how their children should eat and the mum picked this cherry tomato up and was putting it to her face screwing up her face because she couldn't stand cherry tomatoes um, and I just watched her little her daughter watching her face and she just role modeled her behavior, screwed up her face, put it down on the plate. And I thought she is never going to eat cherry tomatoes. <laughs> it's a powerful role we have as, as people who feed children, isn't it? And that example is just, it's, it's obviously, it's not even extreme. I won't say it's an extreme example because I've seen similar, not quite screwing face up, but just an apologetic approach to presenting the food. And I think that's almost as bad as well because the child is picking up on that, aren't they? And that will they're not very excited about it. So I'm I'm putting a barrier up immediately and I'm not going to like that, even though it's not past my lips yet. Absolutely. And also offering rewards. So offering one type of food for another type of food. Um, the research has shown that this devalues the first type of food. Um, so if you offer pudding, if you eat all of your vegetables, um, means that the vegetables become less intrinsically motivating um, and children are less likely to eat them if they're then not offered the reward. Um, so if they don't get the pudding, they're then less likely to eat the vegetables. Yeah, that, that is a bugbear of mine. And we certainly do cover that in the course. I've got some visuals of chocolate versus broccoli. Um, it's always broccoli. I always use broccoli as an example. Um, but it is, it is very much elevating the unhealthy food or the nutritionally, you know, not as good food into a status of, you know, extreme, you know, it's like it's got this elevated status, whereas the poor vegetable is like this barrier to overcome to get to the end goal of something that is actually not as good for the body. And um, so I'm, I'm very glad you said that because that is something that I feel quite strongly on as well and do cover often in terms of the whole, and in fact, the whole food is anything, reward, bribe, comfort, incentive, you know, food shouldn't be used in my opinion as any of those things because, you know, I know when food is used as a comfort in the early years, it can it can potentially lead. And I've seen this as through my work with adults who are emotional eaters because they link the comfort of food back to certain childhood scenarios. But it's not actually the food that they're craving. It's some form of comfort. And um, but because food is used in those scenarios, it becomes a, a sort of a, a formed habit that food will fix this emotional state. Whereas actually, as we know, food won't fix an emotional state. We do see it quite a lot of, you know, an incentive, incentivizing with food. You've all been good. Let's have a reward. The reward is food. But actually, that's encouraging people to reward themselves with food when they're not hungry. And we shouldn't be using food 
in a situation where we're not hungry because obviously we have got an obesity crisis and it does come with many health issues and food is to nourish us it's not to reward us or motivate us or comfort us yeah absolutely I mean and there were a t- there was a time was, we, we find food rewarding um, so food affects our brain and, and we, we find it rewarding and, and there was a time where um, food rewards possibly had a place in society um, but the, the, the situation we're in at the moment where food is so freely available food is is generally not scarce um, that yes learning to comfort ourselves with food is 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 very unhelpful certainly because we know that in terms of habits forming in the early years and that's really the the whole purpose of this course series of how food shapes your child is it's what we do in the early years it's what we do to to not only form the the biological growth and development but those early habits and and people often think well you know it's children it's, it's what we do in the here and now but it's not in the here and now what we do in childhood can really stay with us for forming that food relationship for life. And that that little girl in Wales may never eat a cherry tomato. <laughs> that may be, you know, that may be as long as, as that that lives on. I've seen similar things with with other foods that the, the parent dislikes, the child's never tried, but they will not eat it. And I think it's 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 we need to remember that actually what we do in childhood is not staying in childhood necessarily. It can go with that child into forming and shaping their adult food relationship and because of the way our food landscape is now because it is a very difficult food landscape to navigate because it is designed for convenience and it's overly processed and it is fueling a health crisis I think we need to be able to navigate that ourselves and not let the food control us which is often what can happen when we have a food relationship where we are comforting ourselves or rewarding ourselves or bribing ourselves because the food is too readily available for us to have access to that food in an emotional state and I think obviously life is going to be stressful we're going to be in an emotional state but to turn to food in those times is not going to be the basis for good physical or mental health so I think we're, we're, we're nearly out of time it is a subject that I think we could talk for a lot longer on but I'm aware that people have short attention spans and so <laughs> I think to call it a day but thank you very much Dr Elizabeth Roberts for coming along and joining us to talk about shaping food relationships and in terms of your your book and your family plans where can people find out about what you do and how to access that practical support um so i have a website uh, which is fussyaboutfood.com quite simple um you can find me on social media so my handles are doc uh, roberts diet on twitter and instagram and dr elizabeth roberts on facebook and um, the book is called help my toddler is not eating um and i'm hoping that you'll include some of the links to that for parents if they're interested yeah absolutely and um and also i think we may have some links to some scientific studies as well which we could pop up there so people if they want to have a look at any of those things that you mentioned in a bit more detail they can look up those um those research and those those sort of studies for themselves and and have a further reading absolutely thank you very much for joining me thank you louise you've been listening to louise's health kick podcast the cpd series discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book about how food shapes your child. Or why not get in touch on social media? And if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not like and subscribe to hear more? Oh.
This is a 1386 audio production. 